This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3, the passage that was read in your hearing this morning. Dr. Holmes, thank you for the invitation to... Oh boy. The young people in our church drug me kicking and screaming into the 21st century. The church got me one of these newfangled iPads and that thing won't even straighten up for me. So I have the Word of God on my iPad. Thank you, Dr. Holmes, for the privilege of being here. Faculty, it is a great honor. Students, one and all. I uh, have gotten to know some of you, and especially Dr. Holmes, it's been a great privilege to fellowship with you in the bonds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to, when I was asked to come and speak, the first thing that came to my mind is a subject that is very near to my heart. It's not just Christ. It's not just the Lord Jesus. But we're living in dark times and dark days, and People don't mind you believing in God. They don't even mind you being religious. But when you start speaking of the exclusivity of Christ, you will stir up the ire, the anger, the angst of people. If you tell them that Jesus is the only door, that he is the way, not a way, but the way, the truth and the life, not the way or a way, a truth and a life, you will see the demonic rise up in people today. And whether we realize it or not, we're living in the same days, I believe, as the early church lived. They lived in a very pagan culture. We've got a lot of Christianity around us, but it's not a biblical Christianity, and as I've said so many times over in the Shreveport area, it's not even a converted Christianity. It's a cultural Christianity. A friend of mine from my former church in California came and visited us, and we was driving along one of the roads, and a guy was mowing the yard, and I said, you see that guy right there? And he said, yes. I said, you know, he's saved. He said, really? Do you know him? I said, no, but he's saved. And I said, not only is he saved, But all of his brothers and all of his sisters and his grandpa and his grandma and his wife's grandpa and his grandma and his third cousin, 14 times removed, every one of them is saved. And he looked at me and he started laying. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no, I'm being facetious. We've got a cultural Christianity, but not a converted Christianity. Amen. And what I want to do is look at this passage. Most of you are familiar with the first part of John 3, 
But John, the last part of John 3, for the most part, is forgotten in our day and time. When the gospel began to go forth after the day of Pentecost, Jesus went forth into heaven. The church was filled with a Christ-centeredness. The era of the apostles, the, pat- the patristic or church father period was the same. The seven ecumenical councils, as we call them, and ecumenical in that sense is not as we use it today, but it's from the Orchomeni or Orchomenos, the worldwide, the seven ecumenical councils, Nicaea in 325, Constantinople 381, Ephesus in 431, Chalcedon in 451, Second Constantinople in 553, Third Constantinople in 680 and 81, the Second Nicaea 787, all attest to the Christ-centeredness of the early and apostolic church. Every one of these ecumenical councils dealt with Trinitarianism, and then from there it branched out into the person of Jesus Christ. And people say today, oh, I believe in Jesus, and I've become so skeptical, I'll immediately say, well, tell me about the Jesus you believe in. And when you start listening to the Jesus that they talk about, he is not the Jesus of Holy Scripture, God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, preserved, and sufficient word. The Jesus that many believe in is not the Jesus of Holy Scripture. What we begin to find that after this general early church era, as we would call it, we begin to find that the dark ages set in. The centrality of Christ was eclipsed by humanistic innovations. And today, humanism, rationalism, or I should say irrationalism, relativism have set in. And these things have just trumped the centrality of Christ. We've gotten more politically correct than we have biblically correct. We're worried about what people think and say. And we're more concerned about the frowns of people than we are the frown of God himself. Today the church has lost its effectiveness. Confusion reigns. Feelings dominate the heart and soul of Christianity. And the churches of Jesus Christ have become such a part of the world that it is so ashamed of biblical truth before the world. And thus it is no use in the world or to the world. Well, how did this all happen? How did it come about? Let me just, before I get to the text this morning, give you several reasons for why there is an erosion of a Christ-centered faith today. It's come about because, first of all, there's been a departure from biblical doctrine and sound, wholesome, hearty, robust theology. We have become so concerned that our churches won't grow that we've backed away from preaching the hard truths of the Bible. I think of John 6. After Jesus finished preaching these things, and he laid out, no man can come unto the Father except 
unto me except the Father who sent me draw him. Do you notice there in the text it says from that moment, from that time, many of his disciples, many of his mathetoi, those who followed him, turned and followed him no more. And that's when he turned to Peter and he said, will you also go? And Peter gave his immortal words, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. And people don't want to preach preachers today. And I realize I'm preaching to pastors and ministerial students, missionaries, potential missionaries and evangelists and so forth. And I want to lay before you today the exclusivity of Christ or the pastor's main message There was a departure from theology and doctrine. People became more important than truth. There's a misplaced Trinitarian emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to deal with that in just a minute. Thank God for the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But he is the silent member of the Trinity. He does not exist for his own glory and preeminence. He exists to bring glory and honor to him who is the sure redeemer of God's elect. There is the rise of personality, and we have these celebrity preachers instead of humble men of God. And I came from the mountains of North Carolina, and a lot of these old men, most of them, didn't have much of an education. But, oh, they knew God, and they knew the Word of God, and they prayed, and they knew the power of God, and we saw wonderful things. I'd rather have one of those old country humble preachers than some of these celebrity preachers that are flashing all over the TV. Another reason why there's been an erosion of a Christ-centered faith and a Christ-centered Christianity is the imbibing of unbiblical principles of church growth. We have entertainment. We have drama. We have cultural di- culture dictating what the church should do. And even in some senses, what the church should believe. There's been a total abandonment of the regulative principle of worship. Whatever the people want is what you give them, not what God says in his word. Furthermore, there's an embarrassment of the biblical text. I'm preaching through Romans now. I just started an exposition through the book of Romans. Went from Luke to Acts to Romans. The sad thing, I was talking to a preacher one time, and he said, I just don't know what to preach. I said, brother, I wish I had that problem. (laughs) I said, my great regret is that I will not live long enough to preach all that I want to preach. (laughs) And then I said to him, and I'm not trying to be funny, I said, but brother, you got 66 books to choose from. Start with one, chapter one, verse one, and preach through it if you don't know what to preach. You've got the infallible and inerrant word of God. You've got a whole book to preach. Instead, they go over to Lifeway on Saturdays at four o'clock and get sermon outline books and get a few sugar sticks and preach. They're afraid, they're embarrassed before the biblical text. There's a rejection of expository preaching. And if there's one thing that I hope can be said of me when if Jesus doesn't return and I go by the way of the grave, I hope it can be said of me that I preach the word of God. It has been my goal. You know, Matthew Henry, by the way, and this is not in my notes and I've got to quickly hurry. 
But you know, Matthew Henry's commentary was written with this purpose. He planned to preach through the Bible, the entire Bible, in ten years. And his commentary is the fruit of that. Men, we need to preach, and I know you believe that here. I know Dr. Holmes, I believe you faculty members. It's not just some of the scriptures, it's not just much of the scriptures, it's not most of the scriptures. It is all of the word of God. In toto. And we need to get back to expository preaching. I'm so tired of these topical messages. How to bust stress in your life. How to be financially solvent. I mean, yeah, I don't stress my life and I want to be financially solvent. But if you preach through the word of God, it will deal with those things in its own time. And the proportion that God has given to it will be allotted to you. And then sadly, the last reason is why we have seen an erosion of a Christocentric Christianity is something that is so dear to us as, as Baptists. We've got an unregenerate church membership. Our forefathers bled and died for that. Only those who have been quickened sovereignly by the Spirit of God, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God alone be all the glory, that give evidence of the new birth and evidence of a new life. These things our forefathers bled and died for. Now today, all they have to do is walk the aisle, snap their fingers, pray a little prayer, and they're baptized that evening. Not only do we have an unregenerate church membership, but one of the things that got George Whitfield into so much trouble during the Great Awakening is his sermon from John chapter 3, verse 12, where Jesus saying to Nicodemus, Art thou a teacher in Israel and know not these things? He preached on unregenerate ministers. We've got unregenerate preachers filling the pulpits. And as a result... Lifeway did a study recently. There's a decline in Christianity in America. All the way around. If you want to call Roman Catholicism Christianity, which I do not. There's a decline. All Protestantism is declining. Baptist churches are declining. Our memberships are declining. Baptisms are declining. Giving is declining. Attendance is declining. Why? We've turned from the word of the Lord. We've turned from the ways of the Lord. Do you think God's going to smile on us? There needs to be a return to a regenerate church membership and regenerate ministers. Well, let's look at the text. These words that were read to you beginning with verse 22 actually is where our brother began. But verse 25, all of these. These are the words of the messenger of the the new covenant, John the Baptist. The one prophesied of in Isaiah 40. The one of whom Malachi referred to in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. The messenger of the covenant shall suddenly appear. And here he is. And he is in the midst of... These must have been Baptists in those days because it says there arose a dispute... 
We're very good at that, and some of it is very good, but not all of it is good. And there arose a dispute. I don't have time to unfold the fullness of this text. It's rich, it's pregnant, it is bursting with divine truth. But I want to look this morning at nine things that John says, and I'm going to move through them quickly. I will, I've only been allotted 25 minutes, so I'm going to move through these quickly as we see these nine things that John says, the messenger of the covenant says about the sure redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want to make just a closing few points of application. Notice the first thing that John says about him is that Christ is the, is the dispenser of saving illumination. Notice in verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing, nothing, unless it has been given to him from heaven. I wish, I wish that I could save souls. I wish I could lay my hand upon people's chest and impart to them a new heart, a new birth, a new faith. I have reasoned with people, and to me one of the most glorious things, like in Isaiah 1:18, Come now, God says, let us reason together. The, the God of the universe would want to reason with creatures such as you and I. He who has need no, needed no counselor, he who has never needed to be taught, he who has never needed to learn anything, he who knows all things, all things past, all things present, all things that are yet to come, and every possible contingency in between, says, come now, let us reason together. Wow. And we reason with people. And we speak to people. We urge people. Turn from your... Why will you die? Why will you die? Turn. Live. Look. And live. And they listen to us and they walk away as if they heard nothing. What we need, dear ones, is we need this Jesus once again to begin dispensing, saving illumination. He is the dispenser of saving illumination. No one, no man, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. It's not the exercise of the free will. The will only comes in when it's been quickened and made alive. It's not the gathering of intelligence and knowledge and information. I've witnessed to, I was, my first ministry, I was a church planter in Utah. I talked with professors from BYU, talked with my, a man, my wife talked with him and I talked with him and he had a double PhD. Had the nonsensical idea that even carrots have souls. <laughs> And I'd talk with him about the gospel. And he would be like a deer caught in the headlights. Ever learning. And never 
never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And as these Jews are disputing with John's disciples, John says, wait a minute, boys. You need to understand, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. From heaven. Christ is the dispenser of saving illumination. Secondly, Christ is the preeminent one. Don't have time to develop verses 28 and 29. You, I, I know your professors will unfold this for you. But as John explains the bridegroom and we, his bride, he says this in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Why? He is the preeminent one. One day, I told, I told my wife this one time when I, I'm a 12-year cancer survivor, and they were praying for me. God has been so merciful to me to spare me. I've had 12 wonderful years when they told her after 10 days in the hospital that I, they didn't think I'd make it through the night. They called a church prayer meeting on Saturday night. Sunday morning, they dispensed with Sunday school except for the nursery, and they had a church-wide prayer meeting, and I made it through the night. The doctor said to my wife, they said, well, it's now up to him, and she said, one of my associates was there, and he said, no, it, it, my wife said, no, it's not up to him. It's up to the Lord Christ in heaven whether he makes it through the night. And the next day, my kidneys started working again, and here God is doing great things. And I said to my wife, she said, you're going to make it. And I'm thinking, you know, if I do, I want to do it for one purpose, and that's to make known the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when I die, two weeks after I'm dead, it's not going to be three or four people remember me. Think about that. If you think you're so significant in the grand scheme of things, we're not. He is preeminent. He is everything. I hope my wife will still remember me two weeks after I'm <laughs> I hope my son remembers that his dad was a faithful proclaimer of the word of God. But most people are going to forget about me. That's why... When Spurgeon preached his famous sermon from Matthew 1.21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He said, May the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon perish forever, and may the name of Jesus live forever and ever and ever and ever. And his biographer recorded that he kept saying that over and over, forever and ever and ever, and he exhausted himself, and he said, Amen, and he sat down in the chair behind the pulpit, he was so exhausted. That's what John is saying here. He must increase. You and I, in the grand scheme of things, what a great privilege. If you're called to the ministry today, if you're called to the gospel ministry, thank God. But you and I, in the grand scheme of things, are nothing more than the messengers. And all that is important is the person of the message. 
He must increase. And you and I must decrease. Because he is the preeminent one. Thirdly, the third thing that John tells us about Christ and his exclusivity is that he is above all. Notice in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. You know, I've said so many times, and we've got such a defective evangelism out here today. We've got this evangelism We get people to accept Christ and then we start discipling them. And maybe four or five, ten years down the road, they make Jesus their Lord. That is, as we say up in the mountains where I'm from, there's only one word to describe that, hogwash. You do not make Jesus Lord. God the Father did that 2,000 years ago when he exalted him. And set him above every name that is given. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that he is. What? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. John knew. John didn't know who he was. He's baptizing in the river Jordan. He's immersing in the river Jordan. Right? And he did not know who this Messiah was. Over the hill of the bank comes the Lord Jesus. He sees the Spirit of God on him. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He knew then. And he knew, as he says here in verse 31, He who comes from above is. Not shall be or will be. Is. Present tense. Above all. Jesus is Lord now. I think of the great missionary Hugh Martin. You've maybe not heard of him, but he was one of the first missionaries, pioneer missionaries to the Muslim world. And he goes to ancient Persia, present-day Iran. He's arguing with a Muslim imam. And the imam says, You say your Jesus is Lord. You say that your Jesus, one day the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he's going to reign forever. If he is Lord, how come he isn't Lord over Islam? Good question, isn't it? You know what Hugh Martin said? He said, just wait. The end has not come. He is Lord. Who is? He shall show in his time who is the only potentate, the only king of kings and lord of lords. The present tense, right? Notice the present tense. He is the only sovereign, the only potentate, the only king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is above all. Fourthly, he speaks the word of God As God's appointed prophet. Notice. He says. He who is above all. He who comes from above is above all. Verse 31. He who is of the earth is of the earth. And speaks earth of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard. That he testifies. And no one. Receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony. Is certified that God is true. What is John saying here? He is saying that this one Jesus 
is God's appointed prophet. I love, you know, I'm so thankful that Dr. Holmes read from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Great confession, in my opinion, great best Baptist confession. But the Old Baptist Catechism, and especially the Children's Catechism, has some wonderful questions in it, written by Benjamin Keach. One of the questions, it says, who is the only mediator between God and man? Of course, the answer is the only mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus. It's interesting why it puts the man Christ Jesus. I don't have time to develop that today. Because he is God, is he not? And then how, the next question, And what offices does he serve as the mediator? Three, what are they? Prophet, priest, and king. Why, the children's catechism continues, why do I need a prophet? Because I am ignorant. (laughs) Why do I need a priest? Because I am sinful. Why do I need a king? Because I'm unruly. Jesus fills those offices, does he not? But he came first as a prophet. That's why when the Sanhedrin sent soldiers to arrest him, and there in John chapter 7, and Jesus stands up and says, Ho, if you're thirsty, come unto me, and the one that believes upon me, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living waters. And he preaches that great sermon, and the crowd disperses, the soldiers go away, and they say, Where is he? And they said, never man spake like this man. He so captivated them with his authoritative. He was not like the false prophets whose words fell to the ground. His words went into the heart. John says that he comes and he testifies these things. And no one receives his testimony. And he who has received his testimony is certified that God is true for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. John wanted everyone to know that this one about whom they're disputing and the discourse that was going on, this one is God's appointed prophet to declare God's word. The fifth thing that John points out about him is that Christ possesses the Spirit without measure. Notice what he says in verse 34. For God does not give the Spirit by measure, does not give unto him the Spirit by measure. You know, one of the things that has perplexed me in my years of ministry is to see the rise of what we know as the charismatic movement and Pentecostalism. And they talk about the fullness of the Spirit. And I, you know, I do believe that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and kept by the power of God. And I believe that there is a genuine experience of being filled with the Spirit of God. But at the end of the day, and the Spirit of God indwells us and inhabits us. And he is the guarantee of our inheritance. And thank God for him. He is a comforter. And so many wonderful things. But we only possess the spirit of God by measure. 
but Jesus. And here is a one whether you understand this or this is a wonderful Trinitarian statement. There is an intra-Trinitarian action going on here. Not inter, but intra. Jesus had the Spirit of God. When he was baptized in the River Jordan and the Spirit of God descended upon him, you see this whole intra-Trinitarian action taking place. The Father speaks out of heaven. The Son, God, manifested in the flesh is here. The Spirit of God comes upon him and fills him. And I don't have time, but you young preachers, if you want to do a good, good series of sermons, do a series of sermons on the interconnection of the Spirit of God and the person and work of Christ the Lord. It was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was enshrouded with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And immediately, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, John omits it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us that he was led by the Spirit. Mark even uses, or Luke even uses the word, he was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. We're told in the scriptures that he cast out demons. You remember when he was cast out demons and they said he does it by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus said, if I, with the Spirit of God, cast out demons. Now here's the God-man who had power and authority in himself. Who could do it in and of himself. And yet we see this whole intra-Trinitarian involvement taking place. The Father and the Son. And the Spirit of God. And Jesus has the Spirit without measure. You and I have Him with measure. Thank God we have Him. But we have Him only by measure. Jesus had Him without measure. Who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself up to God. Right? Hebrews tells us. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, so shall he also raise your mortal bodies. The father raised the son. The spirit raised the son. The son raised himself, right? No man takes my life, he says. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. Glory to the lamb. You and I don't have that power. No one has that power. But Christ possesses the spirit without measure. Sixthly, Christ is the chief delight of the Father. Who does God love the most? Look in verse 36. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son. Who does God the Father love the most? I can tell you, thank God that he loves me. And if you're in Christ, he loves you. But he doesn't love us more than he loves someone else. He loves his son. And consider the words that Christ said to his apostles in that great upper room discourse. And, and I, don't, my, I, I don't know how to grab this. My mind can't wrap itself around it. My soul cannot embrace it. But Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, 
That's what I can't grasp. And then even more, even so have I loved you. Continue in my love. There is something there in that wonderful, glorious mystery of the Trinity that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And it models for us, does it not, the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt what? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. It's modeled in Christ. It's modeled in the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son, Christ, is the chief delight of the Father. And then I've got to quickly hurry. I'm about to run out of time. And then seventhly, Christ has all things placed into his hand. Notice, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his singular hand. You know, we sing that he's got the whole world in his hands. No, he doesn't. He's got the whole world in his hand. Now, I can't help but read that. When I read that, I go back to Isaiah 9, 6. You know, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the government of the world shall be upon his shoulder. Not shoulders. You know, in mythology, Atlas had the world on his shoulders. Jesus just has the world on his shoulders. He doesn't need both of them. The singular form. And God has placed all things in his, not his hands, in his hand. That's just showing us once again something of the magnificence of Christ. Something of the magnificence of the Savior that we love and adore. We worship. We proclaim. We seek to tell others. And he doesn't, he doesn't have to, you know, it's, it's interesting. I love it. When you look at the miracles of Jesus, I mean, here's the sleep on the back in the back of a ship, Mark chapter four. Here we see the humanity, something of his humanity. He was tired, he was weary. The God man grew weary. Mighty storm arises. The apostles are like most of us Baptists. We when in trouble, when in doubt, we run in circles, scream and shout, right? Henny penny, the world, the, the sky is falling. Master, the tempest is raging. Carest are not that we perish. Jesus didn't get all worked up and sweaty. He didn't get all nervous and start wringing his hands. He didn't walk over to the side of the ship and start rebuking and commanding the demons and all this other and saying all these mantras and all of these rote and rituals with calmness, with divine authority. He says one word, peace. Be still. The storm didn't argue with him. Well, I don't like that. I, I want to keep raging. He didn't debate him. The storm quietly 
It says, there arose a great storm, and he arose, and there was a great calm. And in the storms of life you face, just remember, the Father has placed all things in his hand. My wife is facing surgery next Thursday, and we're sweetly resting. Troubled at times, but sweetly resting. Why? Because all things are in his hand. Whate'er my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth, and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He leads me that I cannot fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. All things are in Jesus' hands. Not his hands. He, he, it's not so big that he has to use both of them. It's a small thing. He who created the world is easily able to govern the world. Amen. And all things in it. And then, eighthly, Christ is the center of saving belief. I don't want to hear people talk, I believe in God, I believe in God, I believe in God. Tell me about the God you believe in. I want to hear them say, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. I remember my old pastor and old now in glory, Doctor. some of you may have heard, Dr. Charlie, you may have heard of him, Dr. Harold B. Seitler. He said, people, he'd given invitation, people come forward and things like that, and Someone said one time to him, you're not very excited about people coming forward and professing Christ. He said, no, don't excite me anymore. He said, really? He said, yeah. He said, but i tell you what does excite me. When I see them two years later after they've been baptized, brought into the church, and they've got their Bibles, and their Bibles are marked up, and they're still talking about Jesus, and Jesus is still precious to them, that excites me. Amen. Unto you who believe he is what? Precious. Precious. And he is the center of all saving belief. And that's why, and that's what's going to get us in trouble. If we preach that just knowing God is not enough, you must know God as he is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot go to heaven. You cannot have a saving relationship with God. You cannot truly be a child of God without having Christ as Savior and Lord. He who believes in the Son has present tense. I'm not waiting to receive everlasting life. I have it now. Unworthy and undeserving as I am. Thank God, bless his holy name, I have it now. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said in his book on the saints' everlasting rest, he said, heaven for the Christian is just only going to be from one sphere to another. We already possess the life of heaven and eternal life. He who believes upon the Son has present tense, right now, eternal, everlasting life. Given to us by God. And then lastly, the ninth thing, that Christ is the litmus test of life and death. 
He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe, actually from the word obey, the Son shall not see life. And this is another unpopular thing, but the wrath of God, present tense, like the sword of Damocles, abides on him. What think you of Christ? This is the test. If you're wrong about him, you're wrong about the rest. Don't tell me that you believe in God. Tell me that Christ is precious to you and you have eternal life. You deny him and he will deny you before the Father. He's the litmus test of all life and death. Paul Philippians 1, sitting in a Roman jail. We know from the Greek scholar Lightfoot that Paul had correspondence with the Roman senator Seneca. Seventeen letters were exchanged between them. Seneca's idea of a perfect world was have a perfect government which everyone had perfect entitlements and all the privileges of government. And for him... The perfect life and meaning of life was have a good government. Paul is in a jail, chained to a Roman centurion. Perhaps by this time, most scholars believe the sentence of death had already been passed upon him, waiting for the executioner, not to cut his head off, but to take a Roman gladius, a sword, and pierce it right down through his neck here right into his heart and he says for me to live is to have a Mercedes Benz (laughs) for me to live is to have a million dollar home for me to live is to have a Giorgio Armani suit for me to live is to be set free no for me To live is Christ. And to die, I've lost everything. No, for me to die is gain. I mean, someone asked me one time about my retirement plan. I said, I want you to know, my retirement plan is out of this world. (laughs) Amen? Amen? So, you young men and you Christian ladies that want to serve Christ, what, what is it that you're to do? You must remember that there is this exclusivity about Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the door. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And though the world may try to bully you into silence, We must be bold, and we must declare the truth and say like Job of old, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And may God fill you with his spirit, embolden your heart, loosen your lips and tongues, and stand steadfastly to proclaim Christ. I'll leave you with this little anecdote I heard, read one time. During the American Civil War, horrible time, 
an army, and I'm not sure whether it was the north or the south. It makes no difference. The battle was terrible. The commanding officer said to the drummer boy, Beat retreat. The little drummer boy looked up at him, and he said, No, sir. He said, Beat retreat, son. He said, I don't know how, sir. He said, Why? He said, They never taught me. But I can put a beat on this drum that will raise the dead. And he started beating that forward, and it turned the tide of the battle. I can tell you, my friends, our message is not a message of retreat. It's a message that will raise the dead. Let's go forward, conquering in the name of Christ. May God make it so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, seal your word now to the truth or to the hearts of each one of us. Lord of the scriptures, anything that I have said today, erase it from the mind that is wrong. Erase it from the minds and hearts of each one that is here. And anything that I have said that is in accordance with your divine revelation, the holy scriptures, the revelation of yourself to us, then burn it within our souls and flame us with divine power and fill us with a holy boldness to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ in whose holy name I ask these things.